This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. I'm joined in the studio by three of my personal favourites, and I do say that every week regardless of who's in the studio. <laughs> Dr. Crystal, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You, you had that moment where you thought, oh, I'm one of the personal favourites. Oh, my yeah. heart was filled with love. <laughs> it's good to hear. Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good to see you. Yes, very good to see you too. I, yes. knew, I knew that you said that every week. I listen when I'm not on and go, oh. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, I, I know I you, you listen when you're not on and hope you'll hear yourself, and that's not going to happen. <laughs> Just record me if you want to, and just, you know, press play back. <laughs> Probably just as much nonsense as normal. Yeah. I'm sure your husband, Jared, plays it back all the time. Yeah, he never listens. Yeah. Well, that goes for my wife, too. That's okay. Don't, don't feel bad. Um, they hear us enough at home. Yes, true. Chris KP. Hi. I think it's not unreasonable to, uh, you know, for each of us to, you know, make a ringtone of us on radio for our, you know, significant others. It'd be nice, I think. Mm. Yes. Can you imagine how freaky that would be? A ring yes, a yes. Ring. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mine would be freaky, especially yeah. if I heard it myself. I think um, I might set mine to the Einstein and Gogo theme tune. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly gets my attention. I I, we were just discussing that, folks. I can't do that because if I hear that tune anywhere, I feel as though I should be pushing some buttons or doing something. Yeah. It freaks yeah. me out immediately. Liv's doing our Twitter feed, folks, and uh, we're doing more on Twitter these days. Mm-hmm. Um, if you follow our Twitter account later today, we will tweet the start of each of our interviews. So that's something to, to look out for if you missed it. Mm-hmm. Of course, are on the podcast you can get if you miss the show as well um and i think Liv's going to tweet photos of the crew all sorts of stuff today she's going wild but we better get into some science news although it is international women's day mm-hmm. very important yeah um, big shout out to the amazing and talented female scientists mm, of melbourne i have to say i'm not going to behave any differently than any other day <laughs> no, well, but no good, because i behave appropriately thing. every other day so i think it's, it's great to every other day every second day every <laughs> other day. <laughs> they're not bad odds come on pal seven days in the week give me a break well i, I think it's important to recognize that there are people of all genders out there who are yeah. working very hard for diversity and gender mm-hmm. equity for women in science um, absolutely and equity is everyone's issue mm-hmm. yeah and i think even if you're if you are reading that article that appeared in the age over the last 24 hours What's just this? you know just step back get on board dr crystal i thought you were reading yeah. stuff yeah. um no, but you know right. you, you step back and just take a moment take a breath and um just do the best you can to support this issue because i think it's something that you know we all have to work hard to do this it's not just women working hard to sort this out men have to as well mm-hmm. so if you want those suckers out there of the male gender that doesn't give a crap um mars is available to you <laughs> mm. Let's get into some news, Dr. Yeah, Crystal. Well, I wanted to um, mention the fact that Australian science is approaching a little bit of a funding crisis point at the minute. Approaching? Again. Uh, again. <laughs> <laughs> Is this, like, to approach. is this like you know, you're know driving from sort of uh, Broadmeadows to Frankston and you're approaching another set of traffic lights? Yeah. No, not just another set of traffic lights. You're approaching a cliff, essentially. Yeah. Okay. Um, funding for 27 essential research uh, facilities will run out in June. Yeah. And even though these uh, research facilities that are funded under a program called the National Collaborative Research Infrastructure Scheme, or NCRIS, or as I like to say, NCRISIS... <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> their, their funding was um, in the in the federal budget. There was meant to be 150 million dollars to keep these 27 research organisations um, open to keep 1,700 people employed um, and to continue to support Australia's scientific effort. Mm. Um, and that funding has now been um, tied to passing uh, university uh, mm. regulation in the Senate. Right. So, and, and there's kind of no reason why these two issues need to be put together. And it, it's, it's, I almost feel like it's past the uni re- legislation or the researcher gets it. Yeah. It's, it's, it just doesn't feel very I comfortable to me. I think that's exactly what it is. Yeah. I mean, don't, don't gloss it up here. This yeah. is a, this is a very strongly veiled threat. Mm. And, you know, it's disgusting. Mm. And, yeah. And, and the thing is, is that the, what's at risk? Mm. What, what's really is at risk is, is the infrastructure that a science, Australian science and innovation relies on. And, and you can't just turn this stuff on and off mm. like a tap. You can't just shut down a microscope facility, a telescope facility, a marine observation centre, mm. a, a national database of, um, of, of sample. You mm. can't just shut all that down and sack everyone. Mm. And then three months later, when something passes through the Senate, decide to reopen them. Yep. Yep. It, it's, it's, I mean, at the moment, if you're a researcher and you're like, oh, I'd really like to plan some experiments for September, we're going to need to use an imaging microscope. We're looking at the structure of steel in Australia to get a more efficient process happening in industry. Mm. Can we book some time on your scope? No, because they don't know if they've got funding mm. past June. Crazy. And in fact, we've seen some of the effects of how that ridiculous type of um, thing can short-termism do, do damage mm. uh, in the US over the last couple of years when exactly that kind of scenario occurred, mm. where funding was temporarily held back and mm. you know vast quantities of animals and so mm. forth were essentially euthanized as a result. Yeah. And we, we just you just can't turn this stuff mm. off. It takes too long to build up. No, and and the thing is, is that it just really reflects that there's no bigger strategic plan for science in Australia at the moment. Um, mm. that, that that everything's such so, so hand to mouth, budget to budget, short term mm. yep. planning, um, and it's just not how you build a nation. Mm-hmm. And if we want to build a nation that's going to have a high technology future, then we need infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, science doesn't have a big budget relative mm-hmm. to other areas of the economy. So, yeah. Yeah. so I was reading the other day about this as well, and, and apparently it's 30, I think it's, it's like 37,000 scientists are using these facilities. So it's not like it's just, you know, something that a couple of people pop in and use every now and again. I mean, this is the backbone of so many important research projects. Mm-hmm. It's very scary. 35,000. Mm-hmm. Crazy, isn't that's it? An unbelievable. Numbers. So so I'd like to see that resolved and soon. <laughs> Bloody <good>. soon. <laughs> well, look, uh, this this year I've been uh, I've decided to take the gloves off on this issue, mm-hmm. the gloves off on immunisation, and the gloves off on climate change. There is and a lot we need to be talking I about. I think uh, we need to start. Scientists need to start speaking a lot more loudly mm-hmm. and a lot more appropriately when when these things come up because mm-hmm. we've, we've we've taken a lot of this lying down for way too long. Yeah. Anyway, here, here, yeah, Dr. Lauren. Agree. <laughs> so now I'm more like passionate about that and I'm like oh so- the other stuff <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's right. the part that's- you're supposed to be passionate about <laughs> I know, woman. I know. true <laughs> true I am I am very passionate about science you know that but this is very cool stuff actually this is the newest thing in the whole you know evolution of humans where did we come from and the fossils and I always love reading about it every time they find a new fossil because they you know always find like one bone or a tooth or something and then they all of a sudden have all these theories and it's fascinating for me mm. but so what they've actually found and it was published uh, this week in a couple of papers in science and they've had some researchers from Arizona State University in Ethiopia have actually found a, um, a new fossil which they've been able to date to back to about 2.8 million years ago and this is 400,000 years older than our previous 
oldest hominin fossil, so the previous one that's it's an ancestor of ours. And so the reason that this is really interesting is that if you, you guys probably remember Lucy, mm, so Lucy yeah, that was yeah. discovered in Africa. So we always known that you know she, the, the theory has been that you know that particular genus of hominin was a, a, an ancestor of ours, but then we weren't really sure how we got in between that and then the modern human. Uh-huh. So this is really a fill the gaps fossil. So they, they mm. basically believe that this fossil is, is evidence of, you know, how we evolved along the path. Uh, and so it's it's a, been found in really, it's a very much a, a hot spot for fossils where they found it. So it's about 40 k's away from where they found the oldest stone tools that humans have ever used um, and obviously close to where they found Lucy fossil as well. And so the other thing I found really cool about it is um, it sort of helped to, I guess, answer some questions about why the evolution happened. So they were also Mm. able to take some other fossils from around the area and they were able to find that um, the types of mammals that were existing at the time of this new fossil were quite different from the mammals that were existing in the previous fossils that had been found. So it sort of changed from things like monkeys, giraffes and elephants. And then when this, you know, in the um, sediments around this new fossil, they were smaller animals and more like grazers. So things like baboons and gazelles and things like that. And so what they've been able to to predict, I guess, is that um, there was a change in climate, there was a change in environment, and that was sort of what led to the the evolution Mm. of of the human, I guess. Mm. So... there's a lot of information on that, I think, mm. where, where they talk about where you we start using tools and stuff. Yeah. So our teeth shape and design yeah. changed yep. because you no longer had to rip flesh from an animal. You could cut it up using a knife. Exactly. Um, you know, yep. that yep. sort of stuff and, and how, how the, the environment, because, of course, mm. it, it changed from being probably forested to yep. to desert-like yes. um, over a you know, pr- prolonged period. But yes, then yes. we evolved to change our, you know, we had to get yeah. better. We had yeah. to, we, you know, that sort of, um, they call it forcing or something where you, Mm. Um, where you have a scenario where a species is put under intense pressure mm, mm. and it changes. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And it is fascinating how much the teeth... Uh, I can't remember the name yeah. of the guy we had on end of last year, but, yeah, yeah we, we had spoke to someone about that and the fact that mm. you can, you know, from just a small jaw small section, jaw. you can actually tell so much about, you know, my, what my, people were eating and... My only complaint about that research is that I would have released it in about three and a half weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it, it is a good point. It was, so that the timing was, yeah. just before Easter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's just me. It's just me. Yes. But I, I like a good. I like a good story about their evolution, right? For Easter, maybe, Chris Kevin. They may be holding off on another one, an even better one. Yeah, yeah, yeah true. Yeah, true. They, they've released the jawbone. The same teeth. Here's the whole skull. <laughs> exactly. Both skulls from the same body. Yeah. It's going to be great. <laughs> uh, look, I, I, I kind of want to go down the uh, the evolutionary path a little bit too, but uh, with not dead things. Ah, I'm going right. to go living things. Uh, and you may have heard about this uh, this new slash old moth that they found um, uh, and it's it's extremely cool for a few reasons um, the, the, the oh, is sci- this one on Kangaroo Island? Yeah, so yeah. the scientific name um, is Enigmatitea Galetsia, which I'll get to in a moment. So close. Uh, we'll say, yeah, yeah. Um, my Latin's very shaky. These guys, they're tiny, but they're disco moths, okay? The uh, the guys are a golden colour, the girls are a purpley colour, and sort of metallic and shimmery. Mm. The cool thing about this, so new insects are found not infrequently. We do this because we, we, we don't know much about, you know, the planet, frankly, in mm. terms of, of biodiversity. Um, but this is not just a new species. 
or even a new genus. This is a new family. Wow. Um, now, that, that hasn't happened for like 40-odd years, mm-hmm. so it's a big deal. Uh, but they're tiny. They're like the size of a five-cent coin, mm-hmm. and they only occur on one island at one site, apparently on one particular type of tree. Wow. So it's incredibly precise, as far as we know anyway. Um, the, the extraordinary thing about them is that they... Uh, so moths of this sort, primitive moths, usually have a jaw um, and, a, and a, have a developed a tongue. And we know quite a bit about We thought we knew quite a bit about the evolution of the mouth parts. Mm. These guys have neither. They mm. have no they tongue. They don't have a mouth? They have no tongue. They have no jaw. Yeah. So they have mouth parts. Now, they only live for like a day at a time. So yeah. I don't know how much they eat. <laughs> it's, like, it's just a hole at the front. Because the yeah. bottom line is when, you, when your whole life is, you know, is, is um, you know, make babies and die, <laughs> eating may not be the <laughs> priority. No time know. for that. I'm sure, I'm sure they consume stuff. Um, but I, I think it's... I don't know exactly how that operates. Anyway, so but they, they then had to go back and, and track the, the DNA sequencing and go, well, hang on, how has this happened? That their closest relatives have got mouth parts? What the mm-hmm. hell is going on? And it looks like these guys actually, over time, lost their tongue. So they evolved to have it, like they had it, and then they got rid of it again. They kind of went, yeah, tongue schmug, <laughs> moving on. Um, and this is what they managed. They managed to survive without one. So it's, it's weird as hell. What I love about this, though, is none of that. What I love about this is the story of how it came about. So there is a dude, Richard Glatz, who's an entomologist. There's a guy called Andy Young who's not a trained entomologist, but he just has a total eye for this stuff. He's in the classic old-school field biologist, I don't need a piece of paper, I'm just good at seeing things and recognising patterns. Mm. Um, they, they've worked together and found this and gone, looks like it might be whatever we think it is, sent it off to the National Insect Collection at CSIRO in Canberra. They've gone, hmm, it looks like it might be a new thing. Let's check with, uh, with this guy at University of Copenhagen, Niels Christensen, who is the guy, the primitive moth guy, and there has to be one, I guess. Yeah. He's gone, yeah, looks like it's totally new. That's really exciting. Um, but we need to kind of work out how it's worked. So they send it off to the University of Melbourne, who do the DNA sequencing, and go, yeah, it looks like it's this, this, and this. So you've got everything from entomologists mm. to gene sequences mm. to collectors to amateurs bundle up together doing this stuff. Teamwork. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's the quintessential, actually kind of old school, mm. but very collaborative international mm. teamwork thingy. Mm. Um, I also love the fact that, uh, so uh, Glatzella, the uh, the species name, is partly from, I think, uh, well, they haven't claimed this, but I think it's partly from Richard Glatz, the guy who, the entomologist working on it. But also apparently uh, uh, Glatz is German, I believe, for bald. And this is a partially bald moth. It's got a little <laughs> patch on its head. Great. So they've really packaged together. There's a lot to it's love about this. Yeah. There is a lot to love. It's very layered. It's good yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of big events this week, um, if you were watching the uh, Dawn spacecraft, which um, NASA launched some seven and a half years ago now, it's travelled about uh, close to five billion kilometres. amazing. Billion. Yeah, that's, yeah, they're stupid numbers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I like it because it's got an ion drive, you know, so it spits, spits stuff out the back. Yeah, um, yeah. But anyway, it, it went into orbit... Uh, in the last few days of um, the dwarf planet. And I never really liked that term when it was applied to Pluto. Patronising, isn't it? Bit, bit, but um, I have to say for Ceres, which is um, in the asteroid belt, so this is in the, the belt of crap between Mars and Jupiter, mm-hmm. um, this thing is quite large. I mean, it looks like a planet. It's it's big, it's round, it's about the size of, you know, I don't know, Victoria, New South Wales. It's, it's big. Um, people keep saying Texas, and I'm like, how big is that? Yeah. <laughs> I don't live there. Yeah. Yeah. It's the size of Texas. So what? Yeah. <laughs> what is that? New South Wales? New South Wales. Who? Um, (laughs) But um, anyway, they've they've put um, the Dawn spacecraft into orbit, so it's, um, you know, start to send back some amazing images soon. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I I feel a bit for Ceres as as an object because... (laughs) 
when it was first discovered, it was termed a planet. Then it was downgraded to an asteroid. And in fact, I think it was one of the principal reasons why the term asteroid came in. It really? Was, yeah, yeah. Because it was because it looked it didn't have the disc when you looked through a telescope that uh, a because it was too small that a planet had. Yeah. So it was. Astra-like, asteroid, mm. star-like, blah, okay. blah, blah. There you go. Um, nice. Learn something new every day. I yes. may have made that up. No, I think that's true. <laughs> that's good, though. Um, and yeah, then, of course, it has now been reclassified as a dwarf planet. Yeah. So although, you know, my beloved Pluto has been downgraded, Ceres has been upgraded. Yeah. So I'm kind of in the middle now as to the two of them. But, look, this is this is really cool stuff. And, so, and Dawn, of course, went to um, another asteroid, Vesta, which is pretty large. Mm. These are the two largest asteroids uh, in the solar system, and um, and back in 2011. So it, look, it's it's really cool, and this is a, this is a big thing to get in orbit of, of this object, and um, hopefully we'll get some really cool science coming back. Anyway, we better we better move on. Uh, we're going to speak to a guest on the phone in a moment, Marie Treadwell Kerr, who is um, basically uh, the Bat Night coordinator, and it's not about the comics. <laughs> No, it's real no, stuff. No, no, um, no. Oh dear, <laughs> that happened. I thought it was Chris KP, but you lowered yourself, Doctor Crystal. <laughs> Let's take a break, folks. We'll be back in just a moment with a, our first guest. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. We do have our first guest on the phone though today. Um, can you hear me, Marie Treadwell Kerr? Yes, I can. Get a feedback here. Now, we'll see what we can do about the, the signal. Have you got your radio on in the background, Marie? No, I haven't got anything on in the background. Oh, there we go. All right, let's see how we go. Um, now, you're the Bat Night Coordinator. Can you tell us a bit about um, the program? Yeah. Um, well, Australasian um, Bat Night is the program that I run on behalf of the Australasian Bat Society. Um, we set it up because um, bats get an undeserved bad rap and it's designed to raise awareness of, um, of bats um, through a series of community events held all over Australasia. Mm. How important are they in our environmental setting? Extremely important. Um, the small insect-eating bats are important because of the insects that they eat. So they perform a very important mm-hmm. task, uh, task there. And the larger bats, the, uh, which includes the flying foxes, which are the most common ones of the mega bats that people see, um, are actually keystone species in practically all of our forests on the top of Australia and the east coast of Australia uh, in pollinating and seed dispersal. Right. And in terms of bat species in um, in Australia, how many do we have? Uh, I think most people would just think of we have one type of bat, but I assume there are actually a very large number of different types of bats across especially the east coast. Yes. Um, there's around 85 species mm-hmm. throughout Australia. And in any particular place, there could be 17, 20, 30 yeah. Now, in, in terms of these bat nights, tell us a bit about what happens at, at one of these particular nights, because I'm sure a lot of, especially in Melbourne, people will be very aware of what happened, you know, what, what is around them in terms of the, the bats that live in certain parts of Melbourne. In, in fact, in some areas, they're quite prolific. Mm-hmm. But what, what goes on at one of your bat nights? Well, uh, there's in, a bat night could be, anything could be happening in a bat night. And we've had one in, um, in, in Queensland where they go down the Brisbane River and 
and um, watch flying foxes fly out. So it's a batty cruise. They've been one of those for about 30 years. Um, we haven't got any one of those happening in Melbourne, but most most events in, include a talk uh, and or a bat night walk where you um, go out with... Uh, we have these special bat detectors that can pick up the sounds of the little bats calling mm-hmm. and that displays in a visual thing and you can identify from the shape of the, the call and the frequency what bats are around. How do I get one of these bat detectors? That sounds so cool. <laughs> um, uh, you got $1,000. <laughs> well, I'm not going to admit that on air. Even if I just, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's something that um, we, we hear a lot about different species and, and how they're affected by sort of urbanisation and so forth. In terms of bats, I can imagine to some degree they have integrated with our cities, though, haven't they, in a sense? It depends on the species. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more... Um, Resilient species um, can actually do quite well in an urban setting, mm-hmm. and the the more sensitive species, are, we're losing those from the cities. Right. So I was just wondering, this is uh, Dr Crystal here, um, it's recently been shown that bats actually can harbour quite a lot of diseases um, that um, that humans, that can be infectious to sort of animals and humans. I'm thinking of like the Hendra virus and the Nipah virus. And although those are, are relatively un- unusual and uncommon, um, is there concern about the way in which bats and humans are coming together that, um, that might lead to health implications? Um, there shouldn't be any um, health implications with the, those diseases as long as you don't um, handle bats. Um, but with, with Hendra virus, it can't be transferred directly to people. And with, with Nipah virus, the, uh, there's a special lot of circumstance where people can get it from the bats, but it, it's through um, um, eating sap of a, of a certain tree that the bats have already been eating sap from. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be a concern if you come on bat night? <laughs> uh, absolutely not, and there's no no concerns um, um, for for people with Hendra virus that have to go through get contracted by a horse, and we still don't know exactly how that happens. Mm. Um, and then it's from the horses that people can get it. Marie, just uh, out of interest, Chris KP here. Um, so you mentioned that there are some bats that have adapted very well to sort of urban environments, and others less so. It, it, would you would you suggest that people can, and if so, how um, can they encourage bats to to, be, to visit their their house? We hear a lot about how to encourage birds um, and mammals, but is there is there a bat equivalent? Um, yes. Uh, well, uh, lots of um, projects going around uh, for setting up bat boxes. Okay. A couple of bat box projects that have been running for a long time in Melbourne. Um, there's one at Organ Pipes National Park, yep. and there's another in um, Ivanhoe. Mm. And um, and uh, there's a few others I think that have been set up in the last couple of years. Uh, they were they started off as a bat night event by um, you know, getting some bat boxes up, and now now they can monitor them each year. I'm about two kilometres from Organ Pikes yeah, National yeah. Park. It's very exciting. We seem to have a, a cockatoo uh, plague out there at the moment. I'm not sure if they interact badly with the bats, but um, there's a little oval near my house, and there was about 5,000 of the buggers sitting on um, on the grass there the other day, and they've come through and shredded a lot of the trees in the area. It's quite, quite extraordinary. I mean, the, the bats obviously... Um, they must love that area around the organ pipes where there's so many sort of hidden enclosures and it's so sheltered. Is that, is that right? Um, they do. When the, uh, when the National Park was first um, uh, declared a national park, um, there were quite 
Well, there weren't very many trees at all for the for the, mm. the bats, which is why they set up the bat box on project. Right. And um, it took a few years before bats started using the the boxes. But we've been listening from Robert Bender's been involved in that for um, a very long while, and we've been listening every year at our bat conference or every second year at our bat conferences to see the latest which bats are using which boxes and and what's going on. Marie, look, it's it's really it's interesting stuff, and um, we're going to have to run because we we're almost out of time. But um, I would I would love to um, sort of see this uh, what is I have to say one of the truly amazing species of the world bats the way they they navigate the way they do various things they are, they are so understated in terms of the, how often they're talked about but they're extraordinary extraordinary animals um, We'll put the details for Bat Night, um, some of the activities up on uh, our Twitter feed. But uh, good luck with it and um, keep on uh, protecting this amazing species. Well, we keep on doing that, yes. And um, all the events are listed on the Australasian Bat Society um, website. Yep, which is ausbats.org.au. We'll put it out via our Twitter feed. Thank you very much for chatting to us today. Okay, no problem. Thank you. That was Marie Treadwell Kerr, from, uh, who is the Bat Night Coordinator from the Australasian Bat Society, Inc. And uh, amazing species. I just, mm. I, I love them. You know, there's so yeah. much about them that is so extraordinary and they're so unique. Definitely. They're really amazing stuff. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Wow, that came to a short, sudden end, didn't it, folks? The team in here, they're all, uh, they're just going crazy because some guy... And Doug Hilton. <laughs> he won't leave us alone. He won't leave us alone. Uh, indicated that uh, he, he may or he may not be the director of the Walter and Liza Hall Institute. Um, indicated that they did the sequencing of the moth that um, Chris Capi talked about earlier in the news segment. So, well done, we guy. A little known fact that Professor Doug Hilton is a massive moth collector. <laughs> oh, now it's rather well known, I think. <laughs> uh, commiserations to his wife. <laughs> I don't know. Is there like a massive? Is he got like rooms full? I mean, yes. I, I, I've got rooms full of books, which I think you know that I haven't read. <laughs> but when people come over, they go, "Geez, you're well read." <laughs> yes, I am. Um, anyway, anyway, moving on. Uh, we are joined in the studio by Heather McGinn, who is from the Melbourne Aquarium. Welcome, Heather. Thanks for having me. Look, it's great to have you in um, as part of our sort of uh, group of uh, sort of zoo zoological. Type uh, guests we're having over the next couple of months. Now, um, Melbourne Aquarium, uh, people probably wouldn't be aware that there's a lot of research going on there. Tell us a bit about those programs. What is happening at the aquarium? There is. Well, uh, recently at the Melbourne Aquarium in 2012, uh, we started up our own conservation group. Mm -hmm. So, globally, there is an international group called Sea Life Trust, and Melbourne has set up their own branch so that we can start uh, some conservation efforts down here in Melbourne. So, one of our primary focuses is on helping stranded sea turtles. Mm -hmm. So, sea turtles find their way in Victoria, a little bit too cold for them generally, and um, they get washed up on a beach. And it's Melbourne Aquarium's role to uh, to rescue those turtles and help with their rehabilitation. Right. So we work, um, occasionally the zoo will call us to say that they've found a turtle. Um, Same if we had a call and somebody had found a seal, we'd call the zoo. So mm. it's nice to it's nice to be able to have that relationship. Now, I've got to ask some questions about the aquarium because I've been there a few times now. Is have you it, been recently, though? I did, actually. I went there about a month ago. Ah, fantastic. Yeah, and I saw this giant crocodile in there you guys have had. <laughs> Pinjara, he's yeah, very impressive. Yeah, impre- I'm sure he is. I waited. I thought there'd be a children feeding um, program. 
I do say that to my school group sometimes. <laughs> but there wasn't. Um, but one of the things I, I want to know is how um, closed is your system there? I mean, you're obviously on the sitting right on the on the water. Yes. But is there any interaction beyond sort of, I guess, dumping stuff? You know, getting rid of um, water at some stage that you know has been mm-hmm. in your tanks, or is there is, it, is there a sort of ongoing interaction between the sea and, and some of the exhibits? Well, for anyone who doesn't know where the aquarium's located, um, it's right in the middle of the city. It's on the corner of um, King Street and Flinders mm. Street, right there against the Yarra. And for anyone who's ever seen the Yarra, you would know Disgusting. we wouldn't want our animals <laughs> swimming in that. Yeah. Um, it is quite salty at that point. We right. do get dolphins oh, do up to South Bank, yeah, um, every so often. Right. It's nice to see everyone in their suits come down to see the dolphins. Um, but no, we're a closed system, so we have all of our water trucked in. And usually it's collected um, at Mornington because it's one of the deeper ports right on the edge of uh, Port Phillip Bay. And the water gets brought in, it goes through our filters, and then it goes into the tanks. Mm. Now, Bron from Radio Marinara has this great plan that you can enact for us of Ooh, us okay. broadcasting the Sunday programs from the big tank <laughs> oh, yeah. at the aquarium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we want to do this. Now, okay. Bron, Bron has, has found some opposition. Uh, it could be funding, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you can set this up for us, Heather, this would be awesome. I, 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 I have she's a to big speak fan. to our manager. All right, I consider See that, what we could do. Consider promise, that, uh, please and thank you. Done. Yeah, 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 I, I don't know if I use the word promise, but okay. <laughs> now, the other thing that you, you're interested in and, and we got you in to talk about is the great white shark because yes. this is something that I, I remember I took my son on the Sea Shepherd fleet when it was in Williamstown a couple of years ago and, the, and, the, and there was a whole lot of uh, adults there, was about eight of us, and he was six and the woman was talking about um, whaling and so forth and mm-hmm. he came out with, why aren't you protecting great white sharks as well? They're, <laughs> they're in danger too. And everyone was like, Jeez. That was my question to them as well. <laughs> and, and it's something that, you know, I mean, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg listens to the show, so we don't want to be too harsh, but there has been this incredibly bad view of the Great White that's been yes. perpetrated. I mean, tell us, tell us about the state of affairs with the Great White around the world. Well, people, people haven't always been scared of Great Whites. Mm. Um, so... In 1912, there were shark attacks off the east coast of America, up near mm-hmm. New York, and yep. unfortunately, several people lost their lives in a short space of time. Now, at the time, um, scientists came out, and it wasn't just to alleviate everybody's fears, but they genuinely believed at the time that sharks did not attack people. Right. Mm. And their explanation at the time was a giant sea turtle. Oh, right. Which does seem a little ridiculous now, but, you know, we're talking 100 years ago. Yeah, and, and we actually, to, to be fair, not long before that, there were the idea that we were all living on the back of a turtle's So it's not a big stretch. No, no, science has changed a little bit, but uh, yeah. yeah. And so at the time, yeah, it was believed it was a giant sea turtle. Um, And then suddenly, and it's actually the 40th anniversary this year, suddenly the movie Jaws comes out. Mm. And the only thing we think sharks can do is hunt and kill people. Mm. Yeah. Which is really amazing that one film can have such a massive impact on people. Uh, presumably, too, we've, we've, you know, you would hope that the idea that these are just dumb hunting, killing machines is now, you know, something in the past, although I suspect it's not. I mean, the, you know, we, we know now just about how intelligent some of these creatures are and how extraordinary they are mm. and, you know, how much we've learned from them about, about the world and the environment as well. Uh, but shark attacks are still happening. I guess the question is, are shark attacks on people increasing or is the media and general awareness of that increasing? I mean, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I, I have to say, I always put into, you know, if, if you're down at the zoo and you go for a wander in, across the lion's exhibit mm-hmm. and the lion attacks you, 
Hmm. <laughs> Whose fault is that? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're in their we're in their environments, and if if we're if we're overfishing, we're removing our other food sources. Presumably, you know, they, they've you know we're, we're setting this up, aren't we? We are. I think it's very interesting how people view animals on the land compared to animals in the water. So, if you went on a safari in Africa mm-hmm. and you got killed by a hippo. People seem to accept that You're you were idiot. in their environment, you were an idiot, <laughs> yep. and you got killed by a hippo, yep. Yep. which kill a lot more people each year than sharks do. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But we seem to think that when we go into the ocean, we should be immune to absolutely everything that's yeah. in it and should have the right to kill anything that's in it. Yeah, it's a very different response, isn't it? It is. And shark attacks aren't actually increasing. Um, It's on average about 10 people per year die from Mm. a shark attack. It's not like they show in the movies where you get consumed and then they cut it open (laughs) and, like, a head rolls out. Um, It's generally from blood loss. Um, And sharks don't always go in for a big bite first off. They don't want to waste their energy on something that isn't edible and they don't want to risk being injured during that attack. So some sharks will simply bump you first, mm-hmm. find out what you are, and if you appear to be edible, go in for a second bite later. <laughs> yeah. If you appear to be a seal. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. Um, and if you think about it, our population on this planet is increasing rapidly, mm. so more and more people are going to the beach. So if shark numbers were increasing and we really thought that they were going to attack people more, that we'd expect to see an increase and we're mm. not. Yeah. So if you ever do get bumped by a shark, is there, just yeah, yeah, my interest. <laughs> yes, go for it. Is there actually like what is the best way to manage that? Like, is there something that you can do to you know calm them down, or Pretend is it to be an actually just? Motor. Yeah. <laughs> well, first thing, people won't even know they've been bumped by a shark. Yeah, I've heard of surfers who have reported a bump, mm. thought it was another person, looked around, didn't see anyone, didn't think anything of it, yeah. mm. and it was most likely a shark. Mm-hmm. Um, we do get that question a lot. Uh, kids' favourite question is, what do I do when I get attacked by a shark? And the first thing is, it's not when, it's if. Yeah. And it's yeah. highly unlikely. And when I was little, I don't know who told me this, when I was little, I got told, if you're ever being attacked by a shark, punch it in its nose. Mm. And I just thought, yeah, that's logical. I'd do that. <laughs> yeah. And then I realised its nose is close to its mouth mm-hmm. and yep. I'm not a very good aim, so I would most likely throw my arm into its mouth. So now that I know more about sharks, I would go for the gills. Go for the gills, um, yeah. So okay. think about this is where the animal is breathing from. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like if we took a hit to the stomach, we're going to feel winded. It's or the throat. Be, or the throat. Yeah. It's going to be the same for a shark. Mm-hmm. So if, and it's incredibly yeah. unlikely, but if you are ever in a situation with a shark, go for the gills. And am I right that if you do get attacked by a shark, you should just feel pretty special? I mean, it's, uh, it's well, unlikely it to happen. happen to you know? so, so what, <laughs> it happen to me. It hasn't to me either. What's wrong with me, Dan? off the shark attack topic just for a <laughs> yeah, moment. Sorry, yeah. I mean, I, I could just tell Dr. Lauren's going to ask you about scuba gear and, and shotguns. <laughs> oh, um, okay. Yeah, but, but in terms of, I mean, we've seen what removing apex predators from the environment yeah. has done on the land, especially yes. in Australia. I mean, this is extraordinarily bad. And we had some guests on a few weeks back just talking about... Um, that trying to reintroduce them and, and how you would go about that. It's what very a, difficult, What yeah. an inappropriate one like a fox does, how that ruins things. Um, now, the, the great white is an apex predator. Definitely. In terms of the environment, I mean, what is happening with regards to its reduction in numbers and the impact of that on mm. on the rest of, of the ecology that it supports? Well, first off, the reason we seem to be seeing sharks 
in the shallows more often and closer to where people are is because we've taken out the fish. Mm. We've taken out that level in the ecosystem and the sharks are simply hunting for more food. Mm. So this is one of the things we're noticing first off. Um, If we take out too many of the apex predators like the sharks um, who do prey upon animals like seals and dolphins, we're likely to see an increase in those animals which is, again, going to put more pressure on the fish stock, mm. going to impact on people. It's it's an intricate web. It's all closely related. Mm. Now, um, Heather, unfortunately, we're almost out of time, but we're going to have to speak to you again about this now. I'm hoping next time it will be underwater. <laughs> uh, you never know. I don't um, know if we've got all the equipment, but let's see. <laughs> so we're um, but we'll, we'll chat to you again because I think there is so much about this that is um, very much in the hearts and minds of our audience. And for you know those of you who have been long-time listeners of the show, whenever we about shark culls and so forth. Mm. Frankly, I find this absolutely disgusting. It and is. It, it is. really is problematic. And it is so emotionally driven by the media. It's yeah. just, it, there's no science to it no. at all. Um, so we'll get you on again to talk more about this and also about what's going on at the Melbourne Aquarium. Sure. Um, great place to visit. Um, yeah, yeah, and for anyone who wants to know more about sharks too, we actually, our conservation group has a fundraising gala this Friday night in that tank, actually, that you uh, love so much. The big tank. Well, not in the tank, because we haven't told guests to bring their scooby gear. (laughs) Um, But for more information, if you head to the sealifetrust.org.au forward slash news forward slash events page, um, you'll be able to purchase tickets. It's going to be an absolutely amazing night. Heather, thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks for having um, me. We'll put the details on Twitter of that night, but um, it sounds sounds great. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. Australia. Lib's been giving me some grief about my handwriting, so if you get some weird tweets, folks, um, <laughs> you'll know it's because you can't read my handwriting, <laughs> which I have to say is pristine. It's gorgeous. <laughs> oh. <laughs> anyway, uh, we are joined in the studio now by Dr. Carly Travaux, who is a senior research officer and team leader in clinical and clinical psychologist and the Victorian Infant Brain Studies Program down in the Department of Paediatrics, University of Melbourne, and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute on the Melbourne Children's Campus. Did I get it all, Carly? That's right. That's right. There we go. <laughs> well, thanks for coming, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> now, you work in an area that I have to say is it must be extraordinary, but it involves the issues around preterm birth. So before we start, can you give us an idea of how you define preterm birth? It's not a day early, I assume. No, no, mm. that's right. So there's there's a few different definitions. Um, preterm birth is anything that's when a baby is born less than 37 weeks gestation. So full term for a baby is 40 weeks. Right. So anything less than 37 weeks is considered preterm. Mm-hmm. But our research really focuses on um, babies who are born less than 32 weeks or less than 30 weeks, which is sort of a group of babies that we call very preterm. Mm. Um, so in Australia, that's about 1.2% of the population or of babies who are born every year, but the broader population of preterm births is about 8% of the population. Okay. Now, when, when a baby is born at that very, very young period mm-hmm. or a very early period, um, what is different? I mean, what is not properly formed? Are they, are they breathing as a normal child? I mean, what, what, what things are compromised? Are happening. So I guess it depends on when they're born, what gestational mm-hmm. age, but and generally speaking, um, one of the biggest things we see with preterm babies is that the last um, trimester of pregnancy and the first after a baby's born are 
absolute periods of um, dramatic brain development and growth. So there's mm. a lot going on in the brain in that period of time um, and different things happening that don't happen earlier. Um, there's also issues for those babies with their breathing in terms of their lungs being ready to breathe air and sometimes they need some help with that depending on how early they're born. But there are a whole lot of other complications that can happen with babies that are born mm. too early. Now, what we're really talking about here today is the, the sort of the end point. So what happens after these, these children have reached normal, I guess, term age yes. and then are going on with their normal lives? I mean, yes. what, what sort of things do you see in terms of um, these children uh, compared to children who go to full term? To full term. So we're, we're doing a lot of research in our group looking at outcomes for these kids and the kids that we focus on are those born less than 30 weeks. Mm-hmm. And what we see that um, in the early years, uh, a larger proportion of these babies have difficulties or challenges with their development. But what we're learning more about now is that by school age, um, that almost 50% of babies who are born less than 30 weeks will have a significant difficulty with their thinking or with their um, physical development, with their language or with their behaviour and emotions. So it's quite a wide range of problems. Yeah. Now, do we have any sort of feel as to what's causing that? I mean, is what, what about their sort of their physical development? I assume that's pretty much normal. It, I mean, do we know what what's linking these things together? Well, that's, I guess, what we're trying to figure out. Um, we have um, a physiotherapist in our team whose focus is on the physical and the motor mm-hmm. development, and she's really interested in looking at early signs and predictors of later impairment because these children do have a risk for difficulties okay. in that area. Um, I, I think with our group, what we're really focused on is trying to figure out what's happening with the brain and um, mm. and how that influences children's development. But my particular area of, of interest is um, parenting and the environment. So yeah. once kids um, are discharged from the hospital, they go home and their parents are the most important um, influence on their development. So we need to know what's happening for the parents and then how we can work with parents to help get better outcomes for the kids. Mm. Now, give, give us an idea there of... of what the relative importance is of some of those things that parents are doing for a preterm versus a normal child because you know most parents your dr crystal was a pretty loving doting weren't we we were pretty good um but is there a different requirement for preterms compared to other kids well i think um parents are important for all kids but mm. with parents who you have... might say they're necessary <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> for, for a little while yeah. <laughs> yeah. but i think um with kids who are born prematurely there can be some additional challenges for parents and some yep. of those um are related to the early period where there's um a period of intense and prolonged separation from mm. their babies while they're yeah. in the hospital. Mm. There can be um, challenges to bonding and attachment but then also um, premature babies can, their behaviour and their emotional, um, ab- their ability to regulate themselves once they go home from the hospital can be different from a full-term baby so that's putting challenges on parents mm. as well. Because you can imagine it's quite intense and stressful to have a newborn but to have a uh, newborn with, with, with particular needs and, and those, you know, and it's not maybe what you've envisaged for yourself as a parent to, to have a preterm baby and so those stresses must come through in, in people's relationships, you know, particularly you know between parents who are just trying to cope with that new scenario. Definitely. So there is, um, it is a, a really stressful period for parents, and uh, my research is focused on understanding that experience for parents. And there are really high rates of distress in mothers, and we're beginning to learn a bit more about distress in fathers as well, which hasn't really been looked at before. Mm. Um, but there is also an ongoing influence on parents, and even when the kids are in school, um, our research has shown that the rate of um, sort of, I guess, significant anxiety symptoms in parents who have preterm babies is still double that of parents wow. who have full-term babies. Yeah. So it's the, 
influence still goes on. So your research has tracked these kids over time. So how far yes. out have you gone? Like how old are we talking? You, you follow kids not only from you know, from birth but all the way through to what age now? So um, our biggest cohort that we're studying at the moment, they're just turning 13 and 14 at the moment. Wow. So we've been lucky enough to follow them. It's an amazing birth. amount of data. And so what are That's you finding? Right. These kids are studying high school. They are, yeah. So we've just started seeing the 13-year-olds. So we've just started that follow-up. Um, and we're particularly focused on language and um, executive functioning in the brain um, at that time period. But um, we're, we're still finding, I guess, there is an ongoing impact on um, on these families and the kids and their development. Do you, um, so when you, obviously you're tracking their development and their behaviour, etc. Do you track uh, them with any other technology? Do you MRI test them? Do you scan them along the way? And, and, and how... What, what do you learn from those two different approaches, I guess? Yes, we do, actually, and that's what makes this cohort of babies really unique um, in the world, actually, because we have scanned these babies' brains with MRI when they were 40 weeks gestational age, um, and we're able, we've scanned them again when they were seven um, through mm-hmm. the MRI. Um, so we have really um, great uh, longitudinal data on their brain and how that develops, and then we're going to be able to relate cool. that to their outcomes. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's extraordinary when you think of the challenges that, parents would face in these circumstances and it's, it's interesting to me that you're following the, the, the looking at the stress of of the parent because of course you, you can't hide that from from your child and even no. if it's in subtle ways can you give us a bit of an idea of how you measure that i mean you know is it number of coffee cups you break or is it, <laughs> how, do you, how do you you know how do you measure the stress in the parents because uh, you know during up do, do you mind coming in to, no i don't want to <laughs> tick <laughs> how, how do you go about that yeah that's a great question so um, the families in our studies are really motivated and wonderful and parents fill out a lot of questionnaires for mm-hmm. us. So it's just them reporting on their own symptoms of distress a lot of the yep. time. But my research is also um, interested in um, parenting, as I said. So what we do is we have parents and babies do tasks together, activities mm-hmm. or play, and then we video them and then I go back later and look for certain behaviours or the ways that parents um, interact with their kids and then we're able to, to look at that in detail. Mm. And what sort of things do you give back to those families? Because I can imagine the, you know, the average person sort of goes in, they spend their time, they help you. And, and I have to say, you know, for me, you know, you want, I remember years ago we had Gary Egan on here and on the show I agreed to sit in his MRI and PET scanner for about two hours. Oh, geez, that was tough. Um, but, you know, there's some of us who just give, out, give ourselves up to science. But for the average person, you know, it's a, it's a big imposition on their lives to do all this. I mean, what, what do they sort of get out of it? Or is it just merely the, the, the good feeling of, of uh, donating their time? Maybe? Well, I think for a lot of families it is actually that desire to help other families who go through that experience and anything they can do to um, make that easier for them, they're prepared to do. Um, But I think also one of the things with our studies is a lot of these babies, once they're discharged from the hospital, they don't have access to any sort of formalised assessment after that. So for a lot of our families, for us to say to them, we'd love to get you back and we can look at your child's development when they're two, when they're five, when they're seven, when they're 13. We Mm. give them a written report that has results from their assessment. Families can then use that um, to take that to their school or if they're having challenges they can you know, use that as a jumping off point. So that was my next question is what can you do if you're mm. the parent of a preterm baby? I mean, you are already anxious enough <laughs> being told that there could be longer term implications all the way out to high school. That's incredibly stressful. So, so what can you put in place to help these families? Well, that's what we're trying to do at the moment. So we've, um, we've developed... Um, an early intervention program for these families, um, which is actually primarily done over the internet and the telephone. And we're just about to start um, a randomised control trial looking at that 
um, this year we've started recruiting for that. So we are trying to focus on intervention for these families and supporting them in the long term. Mm. Carly, look, it's, it's great work and um, anyone who knows a family who's had a preterm knows it's, it's a big struggle and just getting past that point of even the birth date and that can be a really big, you know, it's a big moment. Yeah. So um, good work. Keep it up. Um, we hope uh, guidelines or whatever come out as a result to, to support those families. Dr Carly Travaux um, from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, uh, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, speaking of which, uh, down at the Royal Children's Hospital in, um, with the Murdoch, uh, there is an event this week, folks, that you have to go to. It's um, <laughs> all of you. All of you. All of you. Um, it's a big theatre. It's in the Alalatham Theatre. This is at, uh, on Wednesday, the 11th of March at 10.30. Um, the question is, how do new genetics, how is the new genetics uh, transforming the diagnosis of rare genetic diseases? Uh, most of these diseases, and, and believe it or not, there's some 8,000 of them identified begin in childhood and collectively the rare disease effect is about uh, 6 to 10% of our population so it's, it's something like 35% of deaths of children, it's extraordinary mm-hmm. um, Professor David Thornburn and his group will be um, there at the forefront of the new genetic technologies in, in diagnosing this and they'll be talking about that on Wednesday and there'll be a panel and there's an amazing MC. <laughs> Who might that be, Dr. Amazing, Shane? Amazing because he's employed at all. Or, uh, <laughs> that's me. Uh, now, look, I, I, I have the great pleasure of being the MC of this event this week. So if you want to get along to it, it's at 10.30 till noon on Wednesday the 11th of March. Just go to the MCRI website, which is mcri.edu.au, and you'll find all the details of that event. But uh, I promise I'll try and do a good MC job if you come. Well, that's the thing. I mean, rare diseases are individually very rare, rare. but there's so many of them. Yes. Yeah. It's actually quite common yes. to have a rare disease. <laughs> That's right, and it's a massive it's a massive imposition on our health system and on the families and and kids and that out there. So you know any support for that is is a big deal. We're pretty much out of time, Doctor Crystal. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Dr. Lauren. Lots of fun. Thanks, Shane. Yep. And uh, Chris KP. Well, that, was, yeah. that was great, mate. That was great. <laughs> I can't wait to Wednesday. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to head off now, folks. I've got a quick bit of uh, um, music to play, which is our outro. If I can set up this computer correctly, I'm pushing <laughs> buttons over there. I'm, uh, yeah, I've been intoxicated today, I think. We're going to hand over to the team from Edith. A massive thank you to Liv for doing our Twitter feed. Um, we'll get uh, the links to our interviews today up in a couple of hours or a bit later I was thinking of doing some stuff this afternoon so it could be late until then I'm Dr Shane remember science is everywhere thanks for listening to Triple R this has been a podcast from 3 Triple R 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au